The Montgomery bus boycott is perhaps one of the first things that comes to mind whenever the civil rights movement is the topic of discussion. For more than a year, 380 days to be exact, Montgomery's Negro citizens, as African Americans were known during the 1950s, struck a decisive blow against the Jim Crow South and the lawful custom of assigning seating on public buses according to race. The boycott and the movement are synonymous with each other. The boycott brought the nation face to face with the nonsense of segregation and all of its rotten ugliness. Where would we be if the Montgomery bus boycott had it not shown up close and personal the struggles that one group of American citizens had with another? Where would we be if the boycott had not introduced a young 26-year-old minister who would go on to prick the conscience of the nation? We are here because of the bus situation in Montgomery. And where would we be if the dramatic and dignified efforts of that moment in time had not also presented a young 25-year-old lawyer with the chance to make good on a secret promise? A promise to change the segregated conditions of his city, his state, and his country. I was going to become a lawyer, but I didn't know any lawyers. But I understood lawyers rendered service and they could help to solve the problems and everything was completely segregated at the time. On this episode of Hidden Legal Figures, we learn about Fred Gray and the legal efforts associated with the Montgomery bus boycott and how the back of the bus took a front seat. The Ark of Justice Institute presents Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast that brings the law into plain view. I'm your host, Derek Alexander Pope, and this first-of-its-kind program rediscovers the lost stories of the lawyers and judges who shaped the civil rights movement. So, whether you're listening in your car, during your workout at the gym, or on your computer at home, you're in the right place, and this is the right time for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Who could have known that a young child born in the southern United States in the early 20th century, one who first planned to be a preacher, would instead grow up to be a lawyer and stage a revolution for change that was a long time coming? Fred David Gray was born December 14, 1930, in Montgomery, Alabama, to Abraham and Nancy Jones Gray, and it seems fitting that he would be raised on Hercules Street since he would later take on a battle that would require great strength and courage. On the west side of Montgomery, which 
was then and still is considered the ghetto of the city. Born in an area called Washington Park on a street that's only two blocks long called Hercules Street in a house that was then 135 and it was what we call a gunshot house. All the rooms were right behind each other and if you open the front door and the back door and were to shoot through it, the bullet would go straight through without hitting anybody. His father died when he was two years old and his mother would raise him and his siblings and she had plans for young Fred to be a preacher. Quite early, they say that I, I baptized cats and dogs. But when I was growing up in this city, in the 40s and 50s, uh, there were two basic professions that young African-American males would be considered well-respected. One is a preacher, and two, is a teacher. And you did both of them on a segregated basis. So I was sent to a boating school of ours in Nashville, Tennessee when I was 12 to learn how to become a preacher. While there, he would excel academically and would be chosen as a student representative or boy preacher, traveling with the school's president, Marshall Keeble, on fundraising tours. And the president of that school, who was one of our pioneer preachers, decided he needed to do two things for the school. One, it was a private church school, so he had to raise money. And two, he had to uh, solicit students. So I was selected by him to be one of his boy preachers who would travel with him all over the southeast and the southwest, raising funds and, and recruiting students. When I finished there, I knew a little something about preaching. But as he was working to become a minister of the gospel, another call was beckoning, one he had to answer, even if it was in secret. So I made a secret commitment that I kept secret for about 40 years, and that is I was not only going to be a preacher, but I was going to become a lawyer. Well, I didn't know any lawyers, but I understood lawyers rendered service and they could help to solve the problems and everything was completely segregated at the time. After high school, he attended Alabama State College and he was also working for the local newspaper delivering the Alabama Journal on Route 602, which covered the area surrounding the college. Because he did not have a car, he relied on public transportation. And that's when he began to see some of the things that were happening on the public buses. So I'd seen a great deal of things that happened on the buses, and I'd seen a lot of people who had had some very unpleasant experiences. Pauli Murray, who would later become a lawyer and a pioneer in the field of outlawing discrimination based on sex, knew firsthand some of what Fred Gray witnessed on the buses. She herself was arrested in Virginia in 1940, for refusing to relinquish her seat on a bust. Her reflections are recalled here by Atlanta attorney Sandra Davis. Drivers publicly humiliated black passengers under the gaze of privileged white spectators who witnessed our shame. The bus was the quintessence of the segregation evil. And so had Joanne Robinson. She was president of the Women's Political Council an organization that had been formed in 1946 
to find some way of dealing with how black people were being treated on the buses. There had been, leading up to the boycott, there had been more than 14 cases that really reached the hearts of all the people of Montgomery. That wherein bus drivers had made people get up off the buses uh, for whites, and if they didn't get up, they were arrested. But two particular instances were that there were two uh, children, a brother and sister, 10 and 12, who had been brought up in an integrated situation, who were on the bus, and when the bus driver invited them to get up and uh, said things to them that he shouldn't have said, the kids didn't even know what he was talking about. The police were called, those two kids were arrested, put in jail, they had to trial, and they had to pay a heavy fine. Uh, there was a woman who got on the bus with twins, one in each arm. She had to put her babies on the front seat to get her money out of her purse. And the bus driver in anger yelled to get those black dirty brats off of that seat and then launched the bus forward and threw those kids in the aisle so that the mother and the children both got off the bus. Those were just two of the instances that helped to infuriate. But then there was the uh, case of a Mr. Brooks who had had a drink too many and got on the bus. And the bus driver said something to it and he was brave enough to say it back. The bus driver called the police and they killed uh, that man right there on that bus. Uh, there were many situations of that kind where people were arrested uh, and had to pay heavy fines. One woman in particular who uh, was arrested and because she refused to get up off the seat uh, and she said quite a few things to the bus driver. So uh, she, he told her to get off the bus. She uh, pay a fare, a second fare. The woman refused to pay the fare because she had had a transfer and that was her fare. So when she got off the bus, the bus driver got out behind her and beat her up right there at the, at the uh, bus station and then called the police. So when the police were called, that woman was arrested, put in jail, and they had a trial and she had to pay $52 for disorderly conduct. It was during this time and against this backdrop of social awakening that Fred Gray fortified his desire to become a lawyer. So my commitment was finish Alabama State, enroll in somebody's law school someplace, don't even apply to the University of Alabama because I knew they wouldn't accept me, finish law school, come back to Alabama, take the bar exam, become a lawyer, and destroy everything segregated I could find. And the buses where he had seen some of the abuses firsthand would be the place to start. Like most southern states, Alabama had maintained a legal system of segregating its public transportation based on race. The separate but equal doctrine had its roots in the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson decision, which itself had been determined invalid by the Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954. But despite Brown, Alabama state law continued the practice of requiring at all times equal but separate accommodations for white and colored races on its buses, separate waiting rooms, separate ticket windows, and separate seating. And the law gave the bus driver the authority to assign passengers to designated areas based on race. Violation of the law was a misdemeanor, carrying a fine of not more than $500. The Montgomery City Ordinance went a little further. It gave the bus driver the powers 
of a police officer, which is what made it unlawful for any person to refuse to take the seat they were assigned. Challenging these laws gave Fred Gray his chance to get involved. My first civil rights case was the case of Claudette Calvin, a 15-year-old girl. One day on March 2nd, 1955, nine months before Mrs. Rosa Parks did what she did, Claudette Calvin was coming from school. She had to change buses downtown. When she got on the bus going out to King Hill, where she lived, uh, more white people than usual got on the bus. She was not seated, seated in one of the 10 seats, but when they filled all those white seats up, uh, the bus driver asked her, she was sitting in the first section, the first seats where there were blacks, asked her to get up. And she told her that she had paid her money, she wasn't sitting in the white section, and she didn't get up. As a result of that, she was arrested. Her parents called Mr. Nixon. Mr. Nixon contacted me, and I represented her before Judge Hill in the juvenile court of Montgomery County in the early spring of 1955. That was my first civil rights case. He would get his next chance just a few months later when Rosa Parks was arrested on December 1st, 1955. I had met her when I was in college before I even went to law school, so I knew of her interests. And I was young too, so I wasn't too far removed from the youngster she was dealing with. So I knew her and she encouraged me to become a lawyer. But even more importantly, as she worked downtown Montgomery at a department store, which was a block and a half from where my office was located. So each day, uh, five days a week, during our lunch hour, she would usually walk from her place up to my office. I wasn't that busy, and we would talk about things. We'd talk about youth. We'd talk about the problems on the buses. After Claudette Carving had been arrested, we talked about Claudette's situation. And every day, we would meet, and we would talk, and we would talk about what type of person and how well a person should do if they were asked to get up to give their seat to a white person. So she was well prepared and was willing to do whatever needed to be done to end segregation on the buses. And even on December 1st, 1955, the day of her arrest, we met as we had for lunch. And I had told her that I was gonna be out of town uh, that afternoon. Uh, and when I got back in town, I had phone calls from her. I had a lot of messages from my secretary telling me that uh, uh, Mrs. Parks had been arrested. And when I returned her call, she asked me to come to her house and talk with her about her case. She told me that she what had taken place, her case, this was on a Thursday evening. Her case was set for Monday and she wanted me to represent her in that case. I told her that I would, and I also told her that not only would we take care of that case, but we need to now do whatever it takes so that we won't have this problem again. What came next was figuring out a plan to make the boycott work and finding just the right case to mount a legal challenge that would change the law itself. 
and he knew just where to turn for help with both of these. Joanne Robinson. She had had a bad experience on the bus in 1948. She is now uh, president of the Women's Political Council, which was a black organization of educated women, basically those who taught at Alabama State. And she had come to the aid of Claudette Carvin when she was arrested. And so had I, and so had E.D. Nixon. So I knew we were interested in doing something permanently. The Women's Political Council was an organization that had begun in 1946 after just dozens of black people had been arrested on the buses for segregation purposes. We had witnessed the arrest and humiliation and the court trials and uh, fines paid of uh, people who just sat down in an empty seat. The night that the, the night of the evening that Rosa Parks was arrested, Fred Gray called me and told me she was arrested. She had uh, uh, somebody gone her bail, but her case would be on Monday. And I, as president of the main body of the Women's Political Council, got on the phone and I called all the officers of the three chapters. I called as many of the men who had supported us as possible. And I told them that Rosa Parks had been arrested and she would be tried. They said, you have the plans, put them into operation. One, we've got to get the message out. And there were more people that go to church on Sunday mornings. So we need to get the black preachers involved. If we can get them involved and they make an announcement at their church so that the people will stay off the bus on Monday, that will be fine. Secondly, we concluded that if we're going to tell people to stay off of the buses, we need to have somebody to serve as a spokesman for them. Everybody can't talk. And the question is, who should that person be? Now, normally, E.D. Nixon had the largest following of people. But there was another man in town named Rufus Lewis. Rufus Lewis lived on the east side of town. He was an educated man, had been a coach at Alabama State. And he, had, uh, he was only interested in one aspect of civil rights. That was getting people registered to vote, getting people elected, and holding them responsible to the people once they get elected. He had a nightclub, and the name of his nightclub was the Citizens Club. And in order for you to get in that club, you had to be a registered voter. So we knew about them. So between those two, who are we going to get? Joanne said, well, we need both of them. We were afraid if we get E.D. Nixon, we'll lose some of Rufus Lewis people. If we get Rufus Lewis as chairman, uh, as spokesman, we'd lose some of Mr. Nixon people. So she said, why don't we get my pastor, Dr. Martin Luther King, haven't been here long, haven't been involved in any civil rights activities, but there's one thing he can do. He can move people with words. I said, well, that's the man we need. For many years now, Negroes in Montgomery and so many other areas have been inflicted with the paralysis of crippling fear on buses in our community. That was Reverend Stephon Ferguson portraying Dr. Martin Luther King as only he can. Here's more of Reverend Ferguson and his recreation of Dr. King's first speech as head of the Montgomery Improvement Association. There comes a time 
when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. We're here this evening because we are tired. We're going to work with grim and bold determination to gain justice on the buses in this city. And we are not wrong in what we're doing. If we are wrong, the Supreme Court is wrong. If we are wrong, the Constitution of the United States is wrong. Exactly what we had planned in Joanne Robinson's living room took place. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was selected to be the spokesman and the young lawyer just out of law school was selected as the lawyer for the movement in charge of the legal activities. That's how I became involved in it and that's how the Montgomery uh, bus boycott got started. The case they decided on was not based on Mrs. Parks' arrest, but the arrest of others. It was called Browder versus Gale. Aurelia Browder was the lead plaintiff, but Claudette Colvin, Susie McDonald, and Mary Louise Smith were also parties to the case. Claudette Colvin, you remember, had been arrested in March 1955, some nine months before Mrs. Parks, and Mary Smith and Susie McDonald were arrested in October, and Mrs. Parks in December. Fred Gray, along with Robert Carter from the NAACP, and Charles Lankford filed the lawsuit February 1st, 1956, naming the mayor, W.A. Gale, the chief of police, and the Montgomery City Lines as defendants. Judges Richard Taylor Reeves, Frank M. Johnson Jr., and Seaborn H. Lynn heard the case in federal court. It was Judge Johnson's first big case since his appointment to the bench back in October 1955. When the judges began deliberating, Judge Johnson spoke first. The junior member of the court votes first. The senior member of the court votes last. That's uh, followed uh, uh, throughout the system. That's to keep the senior member from influencing the junior member and his vote. So Judge Reeves, Frank, says, what do you think about this case? I, I don't think segregation in any public facilities is constitutional. Violates the, uh, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, Judge. <clears throat> That's all I had to say. I, it didn't take me long to express myself. Uh, the law was clear. The law to me uh, was clear in practically every one of these cases that I've decided where race was involved. I had no problem with uh, the case where we outlawed uh, the poll tax, uh, charging people to vote. Uh, I had no problem with... Uh, uh, <clears throat> The museums, uh, the libraries, the public parks, uh, or any public facilities. The law will not tolerate discrimination on the basis of race. On June 5, 1956, the court announced its decision, finding that the state law and city ordinance were unconstitutional. Following the Brown decision, Judge Reeves delivered the verdict. There is a constitutional difference, he said, between voluntary adherence to custom and the perpetuation and enforcement of that custom by law. We cannot in good conscience perform our duty as judges by blindly following the precedent of Plessy versus Ferguson when our study leaves us in complete agreement that the separate but equal doctrine can no longer be a correct statement of the law. The city appealed to the United States Supreme Court, who in November declined to hear the matter. 
letting the decision of the federal court in Alabama stand. And on December 20th, 1956, after more than 380 days, the boycott ended. The, the Supreme Court had to. If there was no turning back, you get 52,000 people in the streets and nobody is showing any fear, something had to give. And so the Supreme Court had to rule that the segregation was not the, the way of life. Even though the boycott ended, Fred Gray was just getting started. And I represented the persons in the sit-in demonstrations, the sit-ins, the uh, uh, Freedom Rides, the Selma to Montgomery March. Uh, all of those things contributed toward the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and helped to change the landscape of America. He would continue his civil rights work, ultimately handling a case that was more startling and reprehensible than he could ever imagine. But then I found out in 1972, with all the work that the federal government had been doing with us, that they were involved in one of the most hideous, racial, discriminatory cases of anything I had ever happened. And I'm referring to the infamous Tuskegee Sifter study. Mm -hmm. A 40-year uh, old study that had taken place in Mason County, right in the middle of what everything is going on. Nobody really knew about it, even though it was not secret. But the federal government financed it. There were some 300 men who had syphilis, 300 who didn't. The whole purpose was to observe the effect of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. Even after penicillin became available, they still didn't treat them. Representing them, finally uh, uh, was able to get a settlement of that case. And then some years later, uh, in 1997, we were able to get President Clinton to apologize on behalf of the nation for those men. Well into his 80s, Fred Gray still practices law in Tuskegee, Alabama, at the law firm that he founded but he still finds time to speak about those issues that sparked his decision to become a lawyer. Economic discrimination is still rapid. Poverty and uh, the people at the lower totem pole are still getting worse, and the people at the top are still getting better. We still have a problem, and that too many decisions are still being made based on race, even though people said they're not. And we're using a lot of our time celebrating about our accomplishments. And if I'm not wrong, we have some real problems. And this country has the capacity to do it. Now whether it has the will and the desire to do it. Fred Davis Gray, a hidden legal figure that changed America. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in February 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net. On the next Hidden Legal Figures. 
with the success of the Montgomery bus boycott, a social reckoning was on the horizon. As the civil rights movement began to intensify, students all across the South staged lunch counter sit-ins. From Greensboro, North Carolina to Atlanta, Georgia, lawyers aided them in their quest for justice. Law professor Christopher Schmidt, author of The Sit-ins, Protest and Legal Change in the Civil Rights Era, captures this iconic moment from the perspective of a legal historian. The legal efforts associated with the sit-ins are the subject of our next episode of Hidden Legal Figures, with the nation asking the question, may I take your order? <laughs>